Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Julie Norman joins us from the University College London. UCL. Professor Norman, thank you so much uh, for joining Surveillance today. How are they different from every other terrorist group out there? Yeah, well, nice to be with you, Tom, here on Surveillance. I would say the Houthis are a different kind of group. They're a militant group that's really been gaining power in Yemen for the last 10 years. They orchestrated a coup back in 2014 that launched a sort of civil war in Yemen. So they control a big swath of the country, including the capital. So they operate almost as a a kind of government there in many ways. And so they're a little bit different in that regard. And I would say they also operate pretty independently. Um, They get a lot of backing from Iran in terms of weapons and intelligence, but they make a lot of their own decisions and a lot of their own calls. And I think we're seeing that now. Julian, Damien wants to get in here. He's got the elbows (laughs) up like he's with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But Julian, (laughs) I got to ask you before we go to the Damien Sassar show, triangulate Israel's challenge on the northern border of Hezbollah. On the West Bank, it's just a mess. I'll leave that up to you. And in Gaza, of course, it's Hamas. I I mean, the terrorist front on a three-front war, is that accurate? Israel now has a three-front war? Well, I would say the region is definitely escalating. And as you noted, there's a lot of hostile actors, especially on the northern border with Hezbollah. I think traditionally that has been the biggest um, concern for Israel. That's where they see the most existential threat. And I would say Hezbollah is the group that's probably most strongly linked to Iran. So that's where that concern has been. Um, The West Bank, I would say, is unrest in a little bit different kind of way, but there's definitely instability there. Um, A lot of that to do more with the political situation. And then, of course, again, these these attacks from the Houthis in in the Red Sea. So regionally, things are certainly on the edge of a knife, Mm -hmm. as as we say. Um, But I would say there's a lot of um, efforts to mm-hmm. to keep things as contained as possible. And we see that both from the U.S. and, and honestly from Iran right now as well. Well, Julie, I, I want you to parse for us the impact on the global economy from what's going on in the Bob Elman Deb. And, you know, we've got Russian oil tankers coming south through the Red Sea. We've got, you know, gas from Qatar that's supposed to be heading north toward Europe. What's the impact on global inflation and specifically European inflation? Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, this waterway, I think it's estimated about a third of um, shipping container traffic goes through the Red Sea, about 10 to 12 percent of global trade. So if you have that whole waterway completely at risk, it's going to have a very quick effect on prices and especially on energy prices, as you noted. 
even ships that are trying to go through, their insurance has gone up substantially. That's right. So this is going to hit markets. And, and again, this is all, all you all's areas to follow those numbers even more than mine. But I can just say, you know, this this will have an effect. It's already having an effect to the extent that um, you know, the Houthis have already succeeded in that regard in terms of destabilizing markets, keeping up one on edge. So talk to us about some of these ships that we're hearing running the gauntlets after these U.S. warnings from the combined maritime forces. You know, I think we've had 114 vessels as the number, including oil tankers, bulk carriers, container ships, all still traveling through the strait despite the warnings. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, I would say, as you noted, there's such a volume and there have obviously been dozens of attacks. That's obviously extremely significant. But I think many are just saying, look, an overall risk of us being able to get through, we still think this is worth it for many shipping um, companies and for corporations to add the extra, I think, 10 to 12 days to go south around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa is just not something they're right. able to do right now. So they're willing to take right. that risk, but we'll see if that continues. Julie, one final question, extremely important. Of course, widely noted on team surveillance is your Baltimore Orioles merch sitting <laughs> behind you in your store. David Rubenstein, to buy the Baltimore Orioles, would that be constructive for the team? Well, I can say that my, my co-director, Thomas Gift, is very much excited about this. So we're both hoping that goes through and we're excited to see what it means for the O's. And that, of course, means you can come back to Bloomberg Surveillance. <laughs> Julie Norman, thank you so much. And folks, that's what surveillance is about. It is wonderful to start strong here in the middle of January with Claudia Sam. Um, academic economist of the year, maybe that's, she, she'd blush. She'd say, oh, no, I, no please stop, stop it. But the fact is she had a huge impact here on the measurement of our gloom nationwide, and she nailed it. She says, we are not in recession. Claudia Sam joins us with all of her work over the years at the Federal Reserve. How distant is recession, Dr. Sam? Recession is always something that we should be on the lookout for. I mean, a lot of other things could go wrong in the economy, but absolutely a recession. We're not in a recession, and a recession is not on the horizon. So we, we are on the path to getting inflation back to 2% and keeping unemployment low. I mean, I, I look, Claudia, at, at, at the better-than-good economy that's out there, and certainly the stock market is, is talking about this. Every central bank is ex post by definition. How far behind is Jerome Powell and the Fed? Well, central banks seem to excel at being behind the curve. Uh, I, I don't think in this case it's going to be a big problem. Uh, frankly, I, I the markets, in my opinion, are getting a little too quick to think the Fed is going to cut. I don't think a March cut unless we get really good inflation reads. I just, they're little C conservative. They do not want to mess this up. I mean, frankly, I don't want them to mess this up either. <laughs> we need inflation under control. It's just the longer they wait, the greater the risk is that something breaks in markets. I do expect them to cut by, say, May. I think, the, and then the, and then it's going to get going. Like rates are going to be lower by the end of this right. year. Claudia Sam with us here. Really important economic discussion to get the day started. We are with you commercial free in this hour. We thank Interactive Brokers for their support, among others. On CarPlay coming up on YouTube. Damien Sassauer in for Paul Sweeney. Damien Sassauer to Dr. Sam. Yeah, no, I mean, Dr. Sam, I mean, you have to tell me, I mean, Barclays just came out this morning and they actually moved their uh, path for the Fed up. They're looking for a cut in March. You know, talk to us about what it would take for the Fed to cut in March. The data are there, right? When I say what the Fed should do, the Fed, frankly, probably should have cut in December, but absolutely by March, the, the inflation data are there. What I look to is the psychology and the past at the Fed. 
the big mistakes under Arthur Burns that nobody yeah. wants to make are cut too early. And frankly, under Arthur Burns, there was the extra piece of caving to Nixon. Yeah. And, and and then there's another part that just these, the head of the FOMC, they were all there in the 70s. Like they knew what how bad this was. I just think that adds this extra layer of caution. No, Claudia, that is so important to look at the human element in this. I mean, the FOMC members, they are human. They are people and they are going to make decisions based on their own personal experiences. But, you know, I just really have to kind of you know double down on that. I mean, the markets are really priced for an early cut. I mean, just unbelievable. Let's talk about what may or may not happen. Are we thinking June, July here? I mean, what are your thoughts? They can't, if the data keep coming in as they are, and as they frankly are likely to come in, if they can't get past May without a cut, it's just going to be like, wow, what what reality are you living in? They could have enough cover to get to March and st- signal it strongly. We could get another verbal cut from Jay Powell like we did in December, right? Like it doesn't have to all come through the- The, the pass through rate. to financial conditions, exactly. Yeah, so, and I, ho- I hope markets are right. I think it absolutely would be time to be cutting in March. And I just, I don't trust the Fed in a sense that, you know. <laughs> okay, there's the I headline. Stop the show. <laughs> Stop the show. Yeah. Not the, you know, you know we're, we're getting, modeling up YouTube right now. Damien, don't you think? Sharing like, Chair Eccles. Sam, Sam, full colon. I don't trust the Fed. That'll get her yeah. the next job as governor yeah. of the Fed. Da- yeah. Damien, save her. Ask one more question of Dr. Sam. Dr. Sam, I mean, we are, cha- we're channeling a little bit of Chair Eccles here in terms of, you know, hitting on Fed credibility, right? But I don't want to go there. I really just want to think about, you know, what's going on in the Middle East, right? And what is the sort of impact that that might have on the inflation calculus heading into March, right? You would think with a three to four week delay from freight rates doubling or whatever, you know, tripling even, you know, that just as the end of February and the March meetings approaching, it's just going to be really, really tough for the Fed to cut in the face of that, no? At this point, anything that throws sand in the gears is going to slow the Fed down. Any kind of uncertainty geopolitics are always a wild card and frankly they're a lot more of a wild card right now election year there's a lot going on in the world not all good actors and that anything the fed can grab onto because they don't want to get it wrong right they don't want to cut and have to reverse so they're going to want to be so sure and if things are happening they're not going to be so sure uh one question here 15 degrees in washington today did puffy make it through the evening did you take puffy for the obligable catwalk in the ice cold She loves the snow. She hasn't been out yet this morning. As soon as I get off, she'll get to go play in the snow. Your cat report today with Claudia Sam, (laughs) Puffy the cat, in the depths of a Washington uh, winter as well. Dr. Sam, of course, of the Sam Rule and her own consultancy. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story 
about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What we do is economics, finance investment, and international relations, and someone in the economics racket who folds all this in together, the synthesis of all this, is Julia Coronado, iconic at BMP Paribas years ago with a terrific slower GDP call within the great financial crisis now at Macro Policy Perspectives. Dr. Coronado, thank you so much for joining as well. How far behind is Jerome Powell? <laughs> well, um, I think not terribly far behind, uh, but he does, they will have some catching up to do as the year unfolds. Inflation, the re- what the data are showing us is that this notion that the last leg of inflation is the hardest just isn't materializing. Uh, Yes, CPI, the the CPI core was a little firmer in December than it had been in the prior six months. But it looks like the PCE, which is the Fed's preferred gauge, is going to be on the softer side. So they're effectively at target on a six-month basis. One of the great observations I saw here, I'm going to go to Ed Yardeni on this. You know him so well out of Yale Economics and Iconic at C.J. Lawrence years ago. And Julia Coronado, Dr. Yardeni would say, look, take out shelter I mean, I mean, right. Damien, you're looking at something down in Coral Gables, aren't you? Like yeah, 6,000 well, square feet? That's exactly right. I mean, rents <laughs> are like out of reach. That's right. That's right. Well, look, I mean, you know, Julia, for me, what I really need to ask you is this. Does geopolitical risk even matter anymore? I mean, let's be clear. Since October the 7th, Israel, Hamas, I mean, equities are up. The dollar's weaker. Spreads yeah. have tightened. Oil prices are down. I mean, who cares? Yeah. Is that well, right? I mean, geo- geopolitical risks are notoriously difficult to, you know, quote unquote price because we don't know what the impact is. Economies are very resilient. They tend to function throughout a lot of disruptions, yeah. right? So will this be a material disruptor to have shipping, you know, uh, rerouted around Africa, uh, at right. least temporarily? Will these skirmishes turn into something that's a broader conflict that interrupts global commerce? That remains to be seen. And right now the market right. is saying probably not. Well, get back to Damien's Coral Gables uh, look-see that he's doing. Ed Jardini says, Dr. Coronado, you take out shelter, and we're yeah. there. I mean, we're, yes, we're there we towards a goods and service sector disinflation. Where right. in the Fed rule book does it say you have to halt a, a accommodative policy because yeah. of shelter? I don't see that in my textbooks. No, it's not in the textbook. And we also know it's not just that shelter is the thing that's keeping it up. It's also that the leading indicators of shelter, uh, of which we have now multiple private sector sources of market rents, and they're telling us that rent growth will moderate. We don't know exactly the timing or the magnitude, but we know that a year from now, that shelter inflation is very, very likely to be lower than it is. So not only uh, is it the thing holding things up? We also know the direction of travel with some degree of confidence. So 
Um, I think the I've Fed is going to be, you know, moving in March. Damien, That's, we have I've, their first rate cut. In I've March. never heard Julia this accommodating. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard of this. It's like a whole new Julia. Well, I'm t- Dr. Coronado has obviously been looking at the same thing I have: the wedge, the CPI versus PCE wedge, the oh, differential, yes, yes, and yes. whether or not that's enough, uh, Julia, for the Fed to cut in March. What do you think? I think it will be, you know, again, we have some data, we've got December data, we're going to get January and some February data before we get to that meeting. And I think if the data continue to show what it has been showing, and that is what we expect, we were never in the last leg as the hardest camp. If that continues to be confirmed by the data, then I do think it will be enough. So January's early but they can leave the door open, you know, sort of signal a neutral uh, stance that they're, you know, just as likely to cut as to uh, hike. And then in March, you know, again, data confirming things, uh, I think they'll be ready to go by then. You know, Julie, also, if you look at the winners and losers since the pandemic really started, and I'm thinking just currencies here, it's been a carry story, right? You've got these high yielding, the Brazils, the Mexicos, all their currencies have outperformed and it's the low yielders on the other side. You know, my question for you is this. I mean, what is the best way to monetize all this embedded carry on offer if all these central banks are expected to cut this year? I mean, what's the best place? What's the best way to do that? That, that is a great question. And of course, as you know, we've got multiple, you know, we've got a lot of volatility globally in terms of the central banks like in Latin America that were ahead of the curve and raised rates a lot uh, further and faster uh, and are now in cutting mode. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of divergences in rates and a lot of capital moving and trying to answer the question. I don't have the magic answer. Um, I do think the dollar is likely right. to remain strong despite Fed cutting uh, because I think other central banks are going to get in on the act I mean, as Damien, the year unfolds. Damien, Dr. Coronado is getting her PhD at Texas since then. She's never said to me, Tom, that's a great question. It's never <laughs> once happened. Never once. Damien, with that accolade it's not from Julia, true. give her the last question, please. <laughs> well, let's go back to Miami, Julia. I mean, should I be buying down there? I mean, look, it's, you know, uh-huh. I mean, I'm just kidding. But seriously, I just, while I do have you here, I mean, look at the curve today. You've got rates kind of backing up here, six pips across the curve, you know. Yep. What are your expectations here on duration? You know, should investors yeah. begin to start, you know, kind of getting long fixed income? U.S. Treasuries again, or or is there a better entry point coming? Well, I think the curve is the is is a great great way to frame it because you know if the economic resilience that has kept us out of a recession so far persists, in other words, we're in a better productivity environment. Yes. Then the neutral rate might be higher. So is four percent high on the ten year? Oh, maybe maybe not. Um, what I would expect to see is the Fed sort of. Uh, acknowledges progress on right. inflation and begins a cutting campaign is that we won't have an inverted curve right. for much longer, and that, that is we would a, uninvert. Yeah. we got to run. That's a mystery. Dr. Coronado frames out seriously, folks, this new productivity and the study of it that is a theme for the next not only year, but two years as well. Julia Coronado, macro policy perspectives. He has led the way with sound essays including his work uh, in his management company, but particularly his podcast, Masters in Business. We have two wonderful podcasts, Joe Weisenthal, Tracy Alloway, Odlots, and Barry Ritholtz, Masters in Business, where he does common sense stuff, and then he beautifully explains the wonkishness. We are now going to talk to one B. Ritholtz 
about investor incompetence is he interviews David Dunning of the University of Michigan on something called the Dunning-Kruger Effect, the most important podcast of the year for everybody who missed the recovered bull market out of the pandemic. Barry, what did you learn from David Dunning about how I went down in the pandemic and I didn't recover because I was scared? So David Dunning is this psychologist who's been working at University of Michigan for years and years and years. And one of his very first published papers with, with his colleague, uh, a grad student named Kruger, um, looked at what the psychologists call metacognition. For those of us who prefer it in plain English, metacognition is how good are we at analyzing our own skill set? Not like, do we? <laughs> well, well, it turns out that metacognition is a skill unto itself that improves as the underlying skill um, improves also. So it's easier to understand with a sports metaphor than it is oh, please, with an investing there. metaphor. Damien says go there. <laughs> All right. So I'm not a golfer, but I have lots of friends who are golfers. And you could put an amateur duffer at the first tee, and you could put um, a pro up next to him, and they'll both uh, hit a shot off the first tee. And, you know, the amateur takes a swing, makes good contact. It goes about... 250 yards straight down the fairway and the amateur thinks to himself hey i'm a natural athlete how hard is golf I, i'm really good at this i'm gonna i'm gonna keep you know playing the professional the ball lands five feet past the amateur and he says decent swing didn't rotate my hips fast enough didn't follow through didn't right. keep my head down and had i done those things this would have been a 300 yard drive instead of a Okay, but Barry, bring drive. this over to the investment world. There's so many people listening here to Bloomberg Surveillance and CarPlay and YouTube, and they're saying to themselves, I missed the bull market. And so much of it is about skill set, isn't it? That, that it's, so Dunning describes this as a two-part decision-making process. And we all understand the first decision. Hey, I'm going to either put money into stocks, into bonds. I'm going to take money out. I'm going to put it into cash. That's the decision we all focus on. But the Dunning-Kruger effect asks the second question, which is how, what is the basis for the first decision? How strong is it? How based in reality is it? And, and how much confidence yep. should we have in the probability that the process behind that initial decision-making is a good one? And a lot of this comes back to not mere over-optimism, but the difference between skill and luck and the ability to identify what were the factors that drove this outcome and was it random or you know if someone right. said hey i'm gonna buy bitcoin at at sixteen thousand it runs to forty five thousand were they lucky right. or you know because i could show you right. could have bought bitcoin at 16 and it went to eight yeah so there are all sorts of different things right. Let what me, is behind the decision-making Let me process. cut in here with some breaking news on Apple Computer. This is before the Supreme Court, and this is the App Store battle with a company called Epic. The Supreme Court rejects Apple Computer's request for Epic App Store review. Apple must change App Store rules that bar uh, developer links. This is about opening up 
the App Store side, which is a huge margin maker for Apple, and that stock trades down 2%, down $3.40 right now. Damien, I'm so sorry. No, no, I, I mean, excuse me. What my what, folks, Pa. What I wanted to ask you, Barry, I mean, look, what we're talking about, and for our audience, they all know this, we're talking about behavioral finance, right? We're talking about signaling mm-hmm. from the markets. And so for me, you know, you're a portfolio manager, you allocate, like, just how much weight do you place on behavioral indicators as opposed to other things like valuation and, and, and growth and earnings forecasts? And such. Oh, it, it's the single biggest factor that determines the success of individual investors, not necessarily professional investors, although there's increasing amounts of evidence to say the professionals ain't a whole lot better than the amateurs and fall uh, prey to the same mistakes. But, but you know, if I flip on surveillance in the morning, I'm going to hear conversations about inflation and elections and geopolitics and uh, the economy and GDP and employment, none of which is within the control of the individual investor. What is in control of the individual investor are, let's just start with the big three. First, your allocation. Are you in cash? Are you in stocks? Are you in bonds? Second, um, your behavior, what you do around those items. Do you consume bad research reports and make panic decisions? And lastly, your patience. So, you know, investing is a long-term process, but humans exist in the here and now. We live minute to minute, and yet we're making investments for decades at a time. And so what sort of impulse control do you have? What sort of patience do you engage in? You know, if you look at this mutual fund versus that mutual fund, this ETF versus that ETF, a half of percentage point gain here or there, does it make a difference if you panic out? I can't tell yep. you how many people panicked out in the summer of 2022. Are you talking about me again, Just Barry? as the market. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I know the triple all-cash fund <laughs> has done well recently, recently now that money markets are yielding 5%. Yeah. Right. But, but you've, you know, the all-cash fund has wildly underperformed Thank you. Um, stocks. And, and the data that's the the data point that makes me right. like just fall off my chair is when people panic out right. of the market yeah. during a drawdown, 30% yeah. of them never return to equities. Thank you. And that's, that's just shocking. Rare's going to be with us a lot in 2024. Barry, I got one final question. This is off Brad Stone's illuminating interview with Mr. Nadell of Microsoft today in Davos. Somebody, you know, Microsoft, you know, it's got the edge, it's AI, it's to the moon, et cetera, et cetera. What do you tell clients that have been fortunate enough to find a gain in Microsoft? You know, anybody who's been sitting in Microsoft for any length of time has a massive amount of capital gains. And unless it's in a qualified account, it means Uncle Sam is your partner for about 23% of those gains. So if someone someone says, hey, I want to sell this and replace it into Mm -hmm. company X, be aware you're starting at a 23% deficit. Just to get to break even, something is going to have to outperform Microsoft by what you're going to pay in capital gains. Now, if it's half your portfolio, if it's swollen up so it's, you know, a reckless concentration, well, then you work out a plan and say, let's work out of this over time. But for someone who's got four, five, six percent of their portfolio in Microsoft, 
I don't know when it's going to end. You don't know when, it, okay. when the run is going to end. There's just no reason That's to it. tap out. Barry, we're going into registration on the Reckless Concentration <laughs> Fund. Barry Riddles, thank you so much. Of course, Masters in Business, just a terrific value-add uh, podcast. There's, there's, there's episodes I don't even understand. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's kick off the conversation with Ken Rogoff, the Harvard professor and former IMF chief economist. Good morning, Professor. Hey, good morning. Or good afternoon. Good you afternoon. Thank you. Let's go with good afternoon and let's talk about what's happening in the global economy. You wrote a fantastic piece in The Guardian just before Christmas. You followed up with a piece in Project Syndicate about the global economy not being out of the woods. Can you just tease some of that out for us just to begin? Well, there seems to be this consensus here in Davos, but I'd also say more broadly in the States that, you know, it's not going to be as good as 2023, which was surprisingly good, but it's not going to be bad. Uh, inflation's going to come down, soft landing. And there seems to be very little understanding that there's a lot of volatility around that. And if you look at the geopolitical situation, forget about Trump, which we were talking about, but the geopolitical situations, like nothing I've seen in my professional lifetime. I mean, we've gone exactly where we are in Cold War II, but we're in Cold War II, could get to be a hotter Cold War II than it was. And that's very destabilizing. I mean, think what the 70s were like. I mean, part of that, of course, was the breakup of Bretton Woods, but it was also, you know, Iran, geopolitical instability. And so that, you know, I think there's a lot of volatility. It's not all bad. I mean, we could have a good year, but that's really hanging over our head. As a market participant, what do you do with, you don't know what you don't know, you don't know about the volatility, what do you do with, hey, a President Trump coming in 2.0? Okay, well, there are two, two separate questions. <laughs> oh, one, one's a lot of volatility, another's extreme volatility, <laughs> so I don't know what okay. to say. But no, I mean, I think uh, volatility probably is not good for, you know, risky assets in general. Uh, th that's what we teach in economics anyway. If there's a chance that the Red Sea gets closed down uh, for six months and it adds to inflation and the prices of everything, even if you believe at the other side it might be smooth, AI kicks in early, and growth is good. Our, our models say the prices should be lower in that case than that. You know, the, but I, I mean, I have no idea how to interpret the market. It seems 
very sanguine. Even when I say, look at things like oil prices, I don't get it. I mean, why isn't there more of a premium built in? They, you know, just think this is going to be over in a week because uh, at least the political scientists I talk to, you know, say if you look at Ukraine, if you look at uh, what's going in the Middle East, if it's the same next year, that's like the good outcome, you know, that it's very risky. Well, so far, oil vessels have been uh, able to get through the Red Sea. A lot of it has, to, has been consumer goods, those vessels. Is it hitting someone's bottom line at this point and that can increase inflation? Well, I mean, the question's what's next if it picks up, where is it going? There's certainly, I think, shipping rates have gone way up, right? I mean, that eventually hits something that's, you know, only a component of what you what you pay. But we're, we're sort of in a volatile stage. It's not that what's happening is going to make inflation blow through the roof. It's sort of what happens next. You can say the same thing about Russia and Ukraine. I mean, uh, I... You know, I support Ukraine. I've worked with the Ukrainians, but it's not been a good year. I don't know what else to say about it. Well, and, you know, there, there are risks of something getting worse and how that feeds into uh, markets and how that feeds into prices and everything. So you don't buy that the sort of lull of 13 million plus barrels of oil per day of the U.S. that are being pumped can really offset all of that geopolitical risk? Well, it has. I mean, it's been a factor, but up to a point, right? I mean, uh, you know, it depends on, I mean, it doesn't offset all the geopolitical risk because it's not just about oil prices, it's about other commodities, it's about investment, it's about many, many global supply chains, many, many things. We started the program this morning, this afternoon, by talking about what was about to happen in the United States and how Europe as a continent would respond to it. What strikes me early on at the World Economic Forum is the absence of a conversation about what on earth Europe is doing for itself, how broken the German growth model is, how it's been totally exposed over the last, let's say, two years, energy with Russia, the fractures with China and where the United States stands on that, and maybe the ability or willingness of the United States to provide defense support if we do get the former president back in the White House. What is the European growth model going to be, and what does that discussion sound like to you? So, I mean, that's a really good question. So, a conversation I've had with many Europeans here is, are you planning to do anything for your own defense? <laughs> do you realize that even if Biden wins, it's not clear we're going to be able to project uh, defense spending at the same level if there's two theaters, much less three theaters? You aren't... I, as far as I understand it, European, Europe has depleted its stocks of munitions. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia has built up its war machine. Europe, not really. Uh, that's just one example. And I think you're asking about the European growth model, and especially Germany. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, my perception of watching this for a long time is that Germany was the sick man of Europe. When I was at the IMF, that was the line. That was the headline of The Economist. And that was the 90s. That was the 2000s, the early 2000s. And, and then they reinvented themselves with the you know, reforms that they did uh, that were made it a, a little bit uh, more easier to fire workers and things like that. And then they've undone everything with pensions and everything. I mean, they've gone to a much more French-style model, and they're getting French-style you know, growth rates. 
And at the same time, uh, China may not be the export destination that it was. The electric vehicles are coming from China instead of the other ways around. So I, I, I mean, I'm a believer in Germany that they, the East Germany was successful under the Russians. They were the most successful of the Soviet bloc. They will reinvent themselves, but it's not happening in the current administration. And uh, so in, more broadly in Europe, um, you know, the, there's definitely a question of what their growth model is. And they, a little bit like a deer caught in the headlights here of the Russian on one side, the U.S. probably in retreat from Europe. Uh, if it's Trump because he's retreating from everything, if it's Biden because he's trying to spread himself too thin, one way or the other, you know, less in Europe. What are you doing about it? And I just get blank stares. So they don't have an answer yet. What about the U.S. growth model and the deficit in the United States that they're running? In the next 10 years or so, we'll be paying more on interest payments than our defense bills. So I believe, and I said this last year when I visited you, that the era where interest rates are zero and everything's free is over. We never should have thought everything was free. Interest rates fell off a cliff after the financial crisis. If you look at the long history of interest rates and real interest rates, as I have, we've had periods where it's been low before, but they end. We've had periods where it's high before, but, but they end. And I think we're much more on trend now in where interest rates are. If that's the case, then there's a lot more adjusting to do. And there seems to be zero political appetite in Washington. The only time they can kind of get things under control is when there's a divided government and they can't agree on anything and they can't. But I mean, certainly if you get the Democrats sweeping into office in a bigger way than last time, you know what's going to happen. And Trump will run deficits, too. I mean, I hate to predict anything he's going to do because the whole problem is he's completely unpredictable. But, you know, there's no appetite for that. And I said, what is the end game to that? The end game is we're going to get these bouts of inflation like we had. And that's not an end in itself because then the bouts of inflation eventually feed into interest rates. And we don't believe that inflation is going back to 2% and it's a bad cycle. We've, we've seen this movie before. Based on that, given the fact that everyone's expecting the Fed to cut rates, possibly if you believe the market six times this year, what do you think is sort of the end place for this rate cutting cycle? I mean, I think we end up at three and a half percent at the very end of this rate cutting cycle, something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, long term rates at four to four or five, you know, something like that in the in the very long run. Um, but, uh, you know, we're I, I, I think what happens in the next year, the six rate cuts, that's a pipe dream if we have a soft landing. That's not happening. Uh, we'll get two or three. But there is a chance, I've said, the one thing we can probably be sure of is that whatever the consensus is here, and not just here, it's going to be wrong. <laughs> and if we get a deep recession, and definitely it could happen. How is it going to happen? I don't know, but a 25% chance it happens. Well, they will cut rates a lot, not six times. They could cut rates, you know, 15 times. I'm not doing the math right. But a lot of times, you know, uh, to if that happens, they're going to drive interest rates to 1%. So that could be built into that six rate cuts, possibly. Ken, this was great. Fantastic to start the week with you, as Thank always. You. Professor Ken Rogoff of Harvard. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, 
TuneIn and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.